The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. By my count, you've heard it six times now. How perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true and valuable and sweet the Word of God is. Praise God we get to study it together this morning. Amen? So Thanksgiving's just around the corner, and I'm already seeing some familiar faces filter in. It's a wonderful time of year. I know we have a lot of our number that is going to be traveling. We have a lot of people who may be traveling here. And so as we start today's sermon, I really just want to pause and say a prayer for all of those travels that are going to be happening. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning so grateful for the love that you have for us, so grateful for this special time of year when we get to pause and take a break from some of our normal routines and be reminded of all the things we are thankful for. In you, we have so many things to be grateful for. Father, we know many of our number are going to be traveling this time of year, and we just ask that you would um, watch over them, that you would keep them safe, that you would let their holiday season go well, and that you would bring them back to us soon. Father, we know that this time of year is difficult for many among us as well. We're grateful to have one another to lean upon during those times of difficulties. Father, above all, we are thankful for Jesus, your Son, for the hope of salvation we have in Him. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Last week, I bragged a little bit on our youth group for their service project that they did. And this week, I want to brag a little bit on our Sunday school teachers. Words cannot express the gratitude we have for those who seems like week in and week out miss out on opportunities to sit in our adult Bible classes and instead spend their morning showing God to our little ones. Now, I know y'all aren't going to like this, but I would like for all of our Bible class teachers, all of our children's Bible class teachers to stand up. And now, they, y'all, they did this early service too. Y'all stand up. I mean it. There we go. Okay. Everyone... Lisa, Lisa is doing such a great job of working with our teachers. We're grateful for her. But you teachers are the unsung heroes who are working in the trenches every Sunday morning. You are singing songs and wiping snotty noses and holding all of our family secrets close to the vest, and we appreciate that. You're teaching our young people how much God loves them every single week, and uh, that, is, that is quite a blessing. Thank you for connecting our children to their anchor and for pressing them towards faith in Jesus, and for playing such an important role in training them. Each of these elements we have seen in our key text, we're going to finish this week. So please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
So far, we've examined the realities that anchor us, the way that people connect us with the sacred writings, which connects us to our salvation, the anchor that holds us fast and keeps us from being tossed around by the winds and the waves and the changes in life. We went on last week to to look at the inspired nature of God's Word and how every last iota gives testament to Christ as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world, the sacrifice for our sins, and the ultimate conqueror over death. And this week, we're going to zero in on verses 16 and 17 and talk about the effect that Scripture has on everyday living. I want to start with a story about a microwaved and a baked potato. When I was in college, I just moved out of the dorm into a house, and of course in doing so I'd gotten off of the meal plan, and I thought it was probably time that I should start acting like the grown-up that I was and prepare some of my own meals. Now baked potatoes were a solid option, They they were cheap, and I had grown up eating a lot of baked potatoes, and I knew two facts about baked potatoes. It was possible to cook them in the microwave, and mom always brought them to the table wrapped in tinfoil. So you can imagine how that ended for me. I wrapped that baked potato up and stuck it in the microwave and wandered off, and I heard a pop, and evidently the breaker flipped before the microwave was ruined because I was able to eventually get it cleaned up and use it again. Um, A microwave is a pretty cool tool, but you have to know how to use it. How you use a tool matters. And as we take a little bit today to look at Scripture, I think that this is an important question that we also ask. How does Scripture work? Are we using it the right way? Paul here in the last two verses of our key text shows us four things that that Scripture does. Teaching, reproving, correcting, and training. And I think that it's important for us to spend a little bit of time today unwrapping how this list relates to one another. As I look at the list that Paul provided, teaching is the first thing that shows up. And in my opinion, teaching is the most general of the four. In its most basic form, teaching is the transfer of knowledge. So scripture is profitable for helping us understand things that we couldn't or wouldn't otherwise understand. Now, most of us have struggled with knowledge-only teaching. I think this is why a lot of us wrestle with particular topics in school. Um, When we see something as impractical, as related only to knowledge and not to daily living, we have a hard time connecting with it. So those of you who struggled with math probably felt like math didn't have much application. Or if you were like me and you struggled more with English, that's probably because you didn't see the direct application that it has. We all know that effective teaching helps connect the topic at hand with the world around us. Effective teaching helps us connect information with our lives. Effective teaching is about more than information, but as Chris always says, transformation. I think this is why Paul continued his list, and he got very specific. He starts with this general idea of teaching, this blanket statement, and then he fleshes out what healthy teaching looks like. Scripture is profitable for imparting knowledge, but it also intersects knowledge with our lives by reproving and correcting and training us. You see, in these last three, we see this this picture, this word picture painted of effective teaching. Reproof is when we're told that we're wrong. Correction is when we're redirected in the appropriate way. And training is where we are developed so that we could hold the course 
so that we could develop the skills that we need to move forward. Now, I've been a little bit unfair to y'all over the last couple of weeks because I made you quit sports analogies cold turkey. And so I, I have worked, finally figured out how to work another one in. During my football years, many moons ago, I primarily played defense because I had no finesse and I would fumble the football pretty much every time they gave it to me. And why did I fumble the football? I think it's pretty simple. I was not very good at holding on to it. I, I remember the coaches going through this whole process with me, probably as a freshman or a sophomore, because I think they gave up on me uh, much after that, this process of reproof and correction and training. Remember Coach McCoy saying, hey, stop right there, Blake. Look at the way you're holding the football. It is not protected. This is wrong. You're acting like some sort of NFL star running with the football out here. You have to stop that. That's why you're dropping it. Reproof. Okay? And then he corrected. He said, this is how you hold the football. And he would take my hands and he would put it on both sides. And he said, hold it with both hands and hold it tight. Don't run like that. I'd say, okay, coach. And then, he, and then would come the, the dreaded part. And now we're going to practice. And you're going to take handoff, and you're going to run, and you're going to take another handoff, and you're going to run, and people are going to try to rip it out of your hands. And if they do, you're going to run some more. And needless to say, I was in really good shape. And I don't know that I ever learned how to really hold on to the football. And that's probably where my sports analogy fades away. I think that they could have kept with me. I, in fact, I'm confident that I could have developed the skill of holding on to the football had I continued to train. Um, they definitely understood that their uh, limited resources were best used elsewhere. But, but here's the deal. If I had continued to train, I could have held on to the ball. It's not rocket surgery. It's muscle memory and strength. How does this work in the spiritual realm? In what way does Scripture provide this type of interaction? Well, I believe in the same way. We start with reproof. Scripture is very good at reproving us. In fact, we often don't realize something we are doing is wrong. We might be fumbling the ball, but we miss the issue that's causing the fumbles. Scripture comes out and tells us point blank certain things that are wrong. Sometimes it just says it that way. It says, this is wrong, and I'm going to make a list. Don't murder. Don't worship other gods. Don't be selfish. And by the way, this is what it looks, this is, this is selfish, and this is selfish, and this is selfish. It, it often very directly speaks to the things we need to be reproved on. We also see at times that Scripture uses examples to show us uh, people who are doing things wrong. So we see Adam and Eve and the nation of Israel and Samson and, and David and Judas and the Pharisees. All of these show us what it looks like and, and what impact the effects of sin has on people. You know, history repeats itself and the Bible is chock full of examples so that we can avoid what these people went through. You know, I, as I look at the text, I see that it usually does both of these multiple times over and over again throughout the text, especially when it comes to things that we really wrestle with, power and, and money and sex. We see it everywhere. Scripture shows us our sin. It exposes our guilt. It challenges us with the very difficult reality that we are often wrong. You know, a few weeks ago, Blair said a wonderful prayer for our evening dinner. We rotate around the kids saying prayers. So she says this really sweet prayer and then instantly opens her eyes and looks up and says, Brooklyn had her eyes open during my prayer. <laughs> so, you know, we've been, so we've been practicing bowing our head and, and closing our eyes. And, and so, of course, our first question was, well, Blair, how did you know? And she said, 
she looked and she said, well, my eyes were only open a little bit. <laughs> okay? And anyway, so our point was made and, and, and we talked about that. As painful and as difficult as it may be, sometimes we need our mistakes pointed out because oftentimes, even though they may be obvious, we don't see them on our own. The Bible is profitable for teaching because more than just imparting knowledge, it screams to us, stop it, don't do that. This is broken. This will hurt. You weren't made for this. Look how this turned out for them. This isn't what you were made for. This doesn't end well. Now, if that's all Scripture did, I think it would be pretty discouraging. We have a word for people who love to reprove, and and then they stop right after that. We call it Bible thumpers. And they take their Bible, and they say, don't, don't, don't. Or maybe they take the Bible, and they whack us over the head with it. Um, And this is the way, and and this is where they stop. Um, And in all fairness, sometimes we need a little bit of sense smacked into us. I think I've made that point well, but if all we spend our time doing is zeroing in on what is wrong, then we won't see the growth that we need. Jesus told a parable about an unclean spirit returning in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. He said, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty and swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. You know, we can identify the error. We can even remove it. But if we stop there, we've just prepared a more comfortable place for other errors to set in. We don't get to decide what is right. And when we try, we almost always decide wrong. Scripture is the tool that has been given to us to tell us what is wrong, reproof, and to tell us what to replace it with, and that's correction. You know, sometimes the Bible says, point blank, this is what is right. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Preach and teach and care for the orphans and widows, care for the sick and the imprisoned. Sometimes the Bible looks at this example of people who are doing things right. I think it's important to note that often these are the same people that have previously been reproved. We see Abraham and David and Paul, especially Jesus, and in these characters is a powerful example of how God uses and blesses righteous living. With almost every issue, in particular the ones that we that that we struggle with, with the things that matter, we are given teaching after teaching and example after example of what is the right thing to do. Scripture paints a picture for us of what holiness looks like and why it is good and how God uses holiness for His purposes. It paints a picture for us of how God takes previously broken things and makes them whole again. Most of our corrected examples were corrected themselves. Yet, we still find ourselves in another awkward spot. We've been told what not to do. We've been told what we should do. And so we set up a resolve and and we make up our mind to do the right thing. We've seen the commands. We've seen the examples. We desire in our heart to, to do good and to be good. And yet, what happens? Paul in Romans 7, 21 through 23 writes, So I find it to be a law. That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Knowing right from wrong and even desiring 
right from wrong seems like it should be enough to keep us from sin, but it doesn't, and we can find ourselves discouraged by that. So Paul adds to his list a final and important thing that Scripture does, training. You don't wake up one day and find that after purchasing a set of golf clubs and reading an instruction manual and watching a YouTube video to protect, perfect your swing that you are a pro-level golfer. You don't buy a sewing machine and become a seamstress. You don't get to watch a few videos about Python or C++ programming language and all of a sudden Apple's calling you to build apps for the phone. Knowledge and action are often separated by skills that are developed through training, and training is a process. So how does the Bible train us? Is it just from repeating all of the do's and all of the don'ts over and over again? While I certainly believe that repetition is a part of training, that knowledge is a part of training, I'm not convinced that effective training simply comes from repeating information. Effective training always comes from practice, from action. How does the Bible do this? Well, the Bible gives us drills. It shows us how to grow in righteousness. We often call these things spiritual disciplines. And they're things that we do on a regular basis that mold us into who we should be. Let me give you some examples. Spiritual disciplines. In the column on the left are some spiritual disciplines of self-denial. We see examples of all of these in Scripture. Fasting, solitude, silence, Sabbath. Each of these um, train a particular muscle in our heart by, by removing something from our lives and training ourselves to do without. But then we also see on the right, spiritual disciplines of engagement. These are important things that we add in that, that, that push us in a direction. We see worship as one of those. The Lord's Supper, scripture reading and meditation, prayer, fellowship with believers, each of these activities exercise a different set of harsh muscles, and, and together they develop that which is necessary to sanctify us, to make us holy, to make us righteous, to equip us for good works. And this is something that happens over time. This is like hitting the spiritual gym, and each of these workouts exercising a different muscle group that's important for us to develop. Paul uses the same type of language in 1 Timothy chapter 4, um, in the letter prior, in verses 7 through 8, he writes, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So you see here that Paul saw spiritual training as valuable. It was an important process, and it mirrors the physical training that we put our bodies through. Yet it holds so much more value. When I was in college, I had to take an art appreciation class. It was pretty boring, but it was an easy grade. We had to learn a little bit about all of the different artists and the type of art that was created in these different times in history. At least I've, I think that's what we learned. If I'm being honest, I don't remember most of what was taught in the class. I remember that I sat on the back row with my cousin Emily, and we mostly made fun of the art. So my sincerest apologies to all of our artists out there. I now, at 37, believe art is valuable. Just for The class gave me something to think about, but it didn't intersect with my life at the time. 
I went through some motions, but I left totally unchanged, totally unaltered. I never engaged with it in any sort of a tangible way. God's word isn't something that we just come to each week and appreciate like a piece of art in a gallery and then move on from until next week when we come to the museum and take another look. God's word is meant to get in our business. It's meant to intersect with our lives. It, it is meant to, to interact. We are meant to interact with God's word in a way that changes us. God's word reproves and corrects and trains us. We need to be taught. God's word is inherently valuable because of what it is. Words of truth from an almighty creator God. But it doesn't stop with just presenting truth. It continues to provide value to you because of what it does to you, because it changes you, because it prepares you for something. And so my next question is this, what is it preparing you for? What is the end result? Why are we being trained? And the text tells us very clear, the collective result is moving us towards righteousness so that we would be complete and equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 17. What does it mean to be complete and equipped for every good work? Have you ever tried to accomplish something you were ill-equipped for? Like tried to play a round of golf with only a putter? Or tried to change a tire without a jack? That one's difficult. Or to snow ski with one of your skis lost up on the slope that you shouldn't have tried to go down? Or play volleyball without a net or write a paper without a computer? I, I realized during first service that was a terrible analogy because some of you have written a paper without a computer. So, um, you know, there are all sorts of things that require a person to be equipped. Activities that require a, a set of skills or a set of tools. Without the teaching of Scripture, without the rebu rebuke and correction, especially the training, we simply do not have what it takes to do good works. Now, one might argue that we see good things happen regularly at the hands of non-believers. And I would argue that even the good that is done by a non-believer is tied to biblical principles they have adopted because of secondary exposure to the teaching of God. Like secondhand smoke, but good for you. God, God has placed you in the world and trained you to live in a way that glorifies him and puts truth on display. And this impacts our communities and our country. You have influence as a Christian. Despite, the, despite some of the, the benefits that we see, despite these inklings of good all around us, I will say this. The only beings who are truly equipped for every good work, every good work, are those who have been trained by Scripture. Think about the words of Christ in Luke 6, 32 and 35. He says this, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them, but love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. It's easy to be prepared for the good work of loving those who love you. We see that all the time. But being equipped for every work, every good work, means that you're also going to love those who hate you. And that's not a natural thing to do, and it will not happen unless you have been trained. 
The second-hand good that we see in the world is different from the complete, trained, and fully equipped Christian who is prepared for every good work. So why is this training important? Church, because this is what you were made for. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what we were made for. In fact, let's read this this whole passage together, starting in verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Works don't save you. Good works are what you were made for. Think about those children's toys. They have the square block that fits in the square hole and the round block that fits in the round hole and the triangle that fits in the triangle hole. You know, we, we don't praise the round peg for fitting in the round hole. It was made to fit there. When the child figures it out, they've learned a valuable lesson. Prior to learning this lesson, life can be frustrating and it doesn't work well. But the bottom line is, That was its design, and that's where it belonged. And to try to make it fit anywhere else doesn't make any sense. You don't get extra credit for doing good things. You are simply living according to your design. And how you make this happen, how do you you fulfill this purpose and design? Through the rebuke and correction and training in righteousness that Scripture gives. Church, we have to be taught. So we see that there are two primary purposes for Scripture. Scripture teaches us about Christ. It develops our faith in Him, and it leads us to salvation. And we've seen this week that Scripture teaches us about living, and it develops us into holy beings leading to God's glory. We are anchored. We are trained. We are prepared. And it all centers on the Word of God. Over the last three weeks, we've unpacked some valuable lessons from these four verses. We've seen how our teachers connect us to the sacred writings which bring us to salvation by teaching us about Christ. We've seen why the writings are sacred, because they came from the mind of God, which makes them true and ever so valuable. And now we've seen how these words step into our lives and redirect us and prepare us to live the way that we were designed. So here's my question for you. What is your relationship with God's Word? For three weeks now, I've begun with the words of David in Psalm 19, and so I'm going to end with them today as well. So we'll make round number seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean and enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Thousands of years prior to Paul's writing, the same things were being taught that Paul writes about and that I am pressing you toward today. This is no idle word. This is the most valuable book in the world 
This book is everything. It gives you all you could ever want. It prepares you for all that you will ever face. It is perfect. It is sure. It is right. It is pure. It's clean. It's true. It'll give you more than all the gold in the world and provide you more pleasure than all of the honey. This this is the book that God wrote. And through it, our salvation is revealed and our lives are molded and we are anchored. If you have a need this morning, please come forward as we stand and sing.